What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's 4th of July weekend in America and time to celebrate our country's liberty. It's also time to declare our independence while we're at it. Let's free ourselves from ways of thinking that get us trapped. Here to bring you a mindful year and 365 ways to find connection and the sacred in everyday life are the authors, Dr. Seth Gillihan and Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh, psychologists who've written these daily posts together. Welcome, Dr. Arya and Dr. Seth. Thank you very much for having us here. Thank you, Diane. It's great to be here. Nice, nice to be with you. Um, We are connecting from just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and London, England. So um, it's lovely and it's a technical feat that you're here. So welcome and thank you for this wonderful uh, book, which is full of personal anecdotes. Each day has a message, a story and a way to kind of exercise those messages. How did you come to write it? Was it the, I had the impression this was a correspondence between the two of you that amalgamated over time. How did it happen? We'll start with you, Dr. Seth. Great, thank you. Well, it, it really started as, as a longing that each of us had to be more fully in our lives. And as we discussed that together, really a, a commitment to, to find a way to, to, to practice more of that, to, to find the kind of peace that we have uh, in, in certain moments that often seems so elusive, to experience more of the connection to the people around us that we often can, can lose sight of when we're busy and stressed and worried about other things and our minds are elsewhere. And so we decided to write a book together in which you're exactly right. It would be based on a correspondence, a, a year-long correspondence, writing every day. Uh, one of us would write one day and one would write the next. We would just use our own experience to, uh, to come up with ways to address the challenges that we were finding just day to day and the things that I think so many people are dealing with. And, you know, coupling that with the, the background that each of us had in cognitive behavioral therapy and in mindfulness. And then the the uh, end result of, of that, that year, besides a, a real year of, of connection and sharing together, was this book. And Dr. Arya, you had firsthand experience um, with Buddhist monks uh, learning mindfulness. What would you add to that? And, and while you're at it, can you give us a, a good working definition of mindfulness? So I'm a, a simple man, so I like to keep things simple. Uh, in terms of how I define mindfulness, it would be as awareness. So mindfulness is at its essence awareness. And then that will beg the question, well, awareness of what? And it's awareness of what's happening around you. So what's happening in the world, with the people, with your circumstances. But what's probably infinitely more important is to be aware of what's happening within you. What are the thoughts which are arising? What are the emotions and the feelings that are, are coming up to? Because it's a combination of these which often then direct our actions. And until we're aware of what's directing our actions, essentially we'll be guided by them and we'll be almost like a puppet. We'll just be influenced and pushed and pulled in different directions. But with awareness, with the mindfulness, we can have a much clearer idea of what this is bringing up and then creating some space in order to then take more wise or effective action. And in terms of the... Mm. Yes. Sorry, Dan, please go ahead. No, go, go ahead. I, I am curious about it in the sense of, um, you know, creating psychic space between what we're sensing, feeling, thinking in a given moment so that 
you know, it's not like we're watching television. It's that we're still immersed in the moment, right? Yes. While, while we're experiencing it fully, we're aware. It's simultaneous. Is that fair Absolutely. to say? Okay. Absolutely. So Viktor Frankl uh, has that quote, which really hearts to the, the point that you're making, which is between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space mm-hmm. is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I actually think the, uh, the analogy that you can use can be flipped in, in another way. Our, our thoughts and our feelings are almost like a, a television program. Often our, our mind comes up with a narrative on a daily basis. It comes up with assumptions and interpretations and evaluations and judgments of who we are, who others are, and the way that the world is. But it's a narrative. It's a story. But what happens is most people become fused to that narrative. They become immersed in that story. It's a little bit watching a film. If it's a horror film, then they get scared. If it's a, a, a comedic part, then they'll laugh. But if we ever don't like the story or we find that the story is actually counterproductive, we can take a step back and see, oh, actually, I'm watching a film. I can turn on the lights and, and then all of a sudden I'll return and be grounded in the present moment. And it's the same with our thoughts. You know, there's a, a well-known study from Harvard that showed that on average, four to eight percent of the time, our mind is engaged in stimulus-independent thought. Now, essentially, that just means our mind is wandering. We're elsewhere compared to the moment that we're in. So it's nearly half the time we're elsewhere. And the analysis showed that people are less happy when they're less present than an obvious route forward is to be more present, to take a step back, to notice our thoughts, but be engaged in reality right now. It's so cool. Thank you. Um, Dr. Seth, I, I want to bring you back to comment on a notion that just um, Arya just made about power and the power to choose options. I I found that very liberating in your book because I think we're always trying to develop some notion of power that's like forcefulness or maybe it is an inner resourcefulness, but we don't think of it in terms of our, select, our ability to select. And in your book, you, you go a long way in describing this power to have options, to remind ourselves that we have options. Where, how can you go further with us on, on bringing us to that understanding? I found it revelatory. Mm. It, it really is a revelation, Diane. I think you know, Ario is describing it really well as he talked about you know, feeling like, like puppets that are controlled by, by these, by, we can allow ourselves to be controlled by outside circumstances. And in, including, I think, one of the biggest things that we do as a type of, of thinking error is that we outsource our happiness. Mm-hmm. And we, we believe that things outside of us are responsible for, for our contentment. So if things don't go the way we want them to or the way that we planned, then we, we think we have to abandon the hope of, of feeling happy. And you know, we often hear and, and believe on some level that, well, you know, things don't make you happy and, you know, it's not the next car, it's not a bigger house, it's not more money. And I think it's easy to get on board with those types of things, but I think we don't take that far enough. I think we don't go deep enough into that to, to recognize that even the things that we think are, that are, are, are due us in some way, the things that, that uh, we think uh, are, we're entitled to, like, like feeling well or having all of our, our strength or you know, having people be kind to us, even those things are, are, are not things we can take for granted or that have to be the final determinant in, in whether we feel content. And when I say happy, I don't mean uh, that, we're, that we always feel like bubbly and, and, uh, and full of energy, but, but we can reach a kind of deeper level of peace that doesn't depend on anything that's happening around us. And it comes through exactly what Aria was describing, through awareness. And in awareness and a willingness to be present, there's a fundamental acceptance, a willingness to receive life exactly as it finds us. And in that acceptance really is a, a peace that's beyond what we typically can even understand. 
Mm-hmm. The peace that tran- that transcendeth all understanding. That's part of the <laughs> that's part of the Episcopalian li- liturgy that I remember from from um, lessons, many lessons. Absolutely, um, that's mm-hmm. the first in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think that um, I'm curious also about the idea of substitutes, surrogates. Um, you know, when you say, you know, we're looking for things and we're, you know, substituting like short term, um, the car, the trip, the, you know, very valid things that can bring you happiness. This morning, a friend of mine gave birth to a beautiful baby girl named Viva and I'm happy. Um, now, this is, it, it is transitory and it, it is a celebration of life. But I wonder, Dr. Aria, if you could address the idea of People through these surrogates, through these sort of imposters, what what are we really seeking? What do you think we are really looking for? Does it change with the times? Does it change with the pandemic? Does it change with times in our life? What are we really looking for when we go out and buy, you know, the new the new bag, the new the new golf club, the new whatever it is? What are we really looking for? And I think it's an excellent point to ask that question because essentially you can really look at multiple different things that we're searching for. And then we want to ask, and what does that bring me or what do I believe that will bring me? And so often we're searching uh, externally, you know, we're looking for the relationship or we have this idea that we need to be married and have children or a society is instilled and embedded in the fabric that we need to be successful. And that's often linked to status or prestige or position or financial freedom. But if we ask what and what will that bring me, naturally that will elicit probably more of an emotional core value or need. And, you know, I'd encourage everyone to ask, them, ask themselves that. If I'm in a relationship, what do I think that will bring me? Often it comes back to a sense of significance and appreciation and respect and worthiness and to feel valued and loved and seen and celebrated. But our confusion is in thinking that the external will bring the internal. As you very astutely pointed out, yes, the external can bring a a temporary transient um, fleeting moment of happiness or excitement. It's what I would call a thrill. it, It brings a good feeling. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's lovely to have these different delightful moments within our day. But if we are searching for a deeper, more fulfilling and lasting sense of appreciation or fulfillment or meaning or purpose, then we're on very vulnerable ground because we'll have to go through life where everything is going in exactly the right way, where we're in the relationship and it lasts until the day we die, where we're where we have children and they're healthy and there are no issues with them, where we continually just get promoted, where we get the car, we get the the job, we get the promotion. And life, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. So it almost goes back to then what you were talking about before with power. And just to bring in Viktor Frankl again, you'd say that everything can be taken from a man or a woman, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And the reality is that you can lose your wife. You can lose your house, your car, your job, your money, your status. And I've actually lost almost all of those things. But no one can ever take away who you are and what you stand for. No one can ever control how you approach life and whether you grow throughout it. And that is yours and yours alone for the taking. And so what I find is exponentially more important is rather than striving for the outcome to focus on the process. Who do I want to be today? What values can I connect to? And we can actually find that we can achieve that in a myriad of different ways, as opposed to just the way that society says we need to attain it. Well, I think that you've brought home a wonderful issue for all of us to kind of sit with. Uh, You mentioned Viktor Frankl. He and Elie Wiesel, who are both quoted in your book, um, or who are quoted in your book, were endured um, concentration camps um, and emerged with this understanding that you can choose to have a particular attitude 
no matter what the circumstances. Um, and so I think they speak with great credibility to that point, having endured what they did um, and to emerge with this, you know, triumphant spirit or just a surviving, um, enduring belief in, yeah, the ability to control, to have awareness and to choose with power what we're going to feel about just about anything. Uh, it's a miraculous, it's a miraculous empowerment. And I thank you too for bringing it to us with this wonderful book, A Mindful Year, 365 Ways to Find Connection and Sacred in the Everyday Life. We're going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Seth Gilhan and Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh more about how to achieve these skills, how to view our failures as simply a lack of skills, and how to take the next step forward. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh and Dr. Seth Gillahan, authors of A Mindful Year, 365 Ways to Find Connection and the Sacred in Everyday Life. It's broken into daily passages, entirely readable. I'm going to keep it with me as a companion. I, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Seth, about the amortization of regret, remorse, looking back at one's life, no matter where you are, really, and picking apart these experiences that we view as failures or disappointments that contribute to what Arya was saying about um, our narratives, the narratives that we're constructing daily and repeating to ourselves over and over again about what we're capable of, what we've done, who we are, what we're good at, all of that. And you brought really together for me in the book a wonderful point of taking apart, really dismantling that concept into skill sets versus shame over disappointments and failures. Can you address that and talk to us about how to view these skill sets in a much more neutral way for ourselves? Yeah, yeah, it is such an important point because, I mean, all of us are, are going to have failures and disappointments in our lives, and and what, what matters most isn't whether those things happen, but how we respond to them, what we do next. And and that has a lot to do with how we, we view the times when we don't succeed. So, I mean, I think the... The first thing to notice is that most of our growth happens when times are hard, when we uh, we make a mistake or uh, we don't get what we want. That's that's often when uh, when when real change that we can't see at the time is happening, and so we can we can spend a lot of energy beating ourselves up for those things or. We can can practice just like we do with anything, opening to uh, what's happening. That the things don't always go the way that we want them to, and, and sometimes sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's good that our plans don't go exactly as 
we had intended. And I think part of, of a big part of what often happens for us when we start practicing mindfulness or learning to train our mind is we look back and we say, oh my God, I've been half asleep. I've been walking through life. I've missed so much of it. Or I've, I've been you know, thinking in a certain way and it's been like, this is where so many of my struggles are coming from. And we can, can really be hard on ourselves and, you know, even kind of judging ourselves for having been so judgmental toward ourselves all our lives. And so we can, we can take care in those times to, to recognize that it's, it's all growth. We're, we're never going to get there, wherever there is. And wherever we are now, I think we finally get it. You know, there will probably be a point where we look back and say, wow, I really you know, didn't understand so many things. And, and that's all right. I mean, I, I have the persistent fantasy that I'm going to really figure things out before I die. I really hope I do before I die. And then mm-hmm. I remember, I, I'm sure I won't. I'm sure there'll still be things that I'm, I'm working on. And that's probably a good thing that the, the last chapter will never get written before our death. You brought in the concept of time, which I think exerts an enormous amount of pressure on us or can potentially. And this idea of, of, yeah, ticking things off before a certain time, I mean, it robs us so much of just, you know, being, being in the moment, forgetting about time for a minute <laughs> and, and, and just, you know, immersing ourselves in the quality of, of the experience. You know, I even, you know, when I was reading your book, I, I thought to myself, well, I want to get to this point. I want to get to this point. But, you know, then I finally, I just took each page and really delved into it and really, um, it offers so much of an experience um, that I thought to myself, I don't care how far I get. I'm just going to really enjoy this thing. Um, It's eminently enjoyable. And I got up till July 2nd, which is somehow appropriate. (laughs) I'll I'll go forward from there. But Dr. Arya, to this point of being tough on ourselves um, Mm. and all this tough love, which is just so painful to bear sometimes. What about developing another kind of voice in ourselves? The, mm. the, the, kind, the kind grandmother voice, the forgiving voice. What about doing that? How does that work? So I think part of it is seeing that the voice that we have within our head, in our head now uh, has a mind of its own. And, and the ego or the mind has been conditioned by society. And so that society places an immense amount of pressure on individuals, and I would say particularly on females, to achieve this standard of inverted commas perfection, to be a perfect mother and a perfect partner and a uh, have the perfect career and to look perfect and to act perfectly. And, and that is something which we begin to internalize. Now, if you combine that with the brain as it's evolved, which is to have a negativity bias, to be harsh and critical, because essentially it's a fear-based mechanism. If you're more fearful, you're more likely to survive. And that's why we're all here today, because our ancestors had a very fearful brain. Then you've got high levels of perfection. You've got a critical brain, which will then exert a huge amount of judgment on ourselves for not achieving what we think we should achieve or could achieve. We have this idea of potential within our head and in some way we're falling short. And often what I like to do is to take a step back and in a way put on a spiritual lens. And it's to see that the universe, even from a scientific point of view, is evolving. And as individuals, we are also evolving. And Anytime that we experience something, to to speak back to what what Seth was commenting on, we'll often go through an unwanted, unexpected event in in our life. And often we judge that event within that moment because in the moment it is extremely painful. So for instance, I was married, I was with uh, my wife for, we're together for 10 years, married for five, and she told me one day that she'd been having an affair with a man from work and was pregnant with his child. And in that moment, of course, it felt like all the things that 
I, I valued and were meaningful to me. My wife, our life, our house, our dog, our family, it all came tumbling down. In that moment, it feels like the worst thing that's ever happened. But when you have on a spiritual lens and you can take a step back and see a bigger part of the picture, it's a part of life unfolding and evolving. And there's a quote by A.H. Kalmus, which is, uh, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They're actually yours. They're specifically yours, designed specifically for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You're not going in the right direction unless there's something pricking you in the side telling you, look here, this way. That part of you loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That is its purpose. And the truth is that every event that happens in our life is an opportunity to grow and to spiritually awaken. Every pain that we go through is in a very strange way, and it's difficult to understand at the time, a spiritual gift that will be a part of life unfolding and a part of you evolving. And whenever we begin to put on the spiritual lens, there's less fear. It's knowing that even although in this moment I'm in a huge amount of pain, and whenever my wife told me that, I was in a tumultuous amount of pain at the time. But there's a second part to it. There was a little whisper inside of me that arose, and it said four words, all will be well. All will be well. All will be well. It's it's an enormous jolt, and um, I, I almost feel sort of paralyzed thinking about it, because to find the the love and compassion in that situation, you know, you talk in your book about love being the opposite of fear. Certainly, when we're about to lose everything and everyone that you know is dear to us, we have great fear. It's very hard to get to that place again where you are, thank goodness, listening to the whisper inside, saying forward. Um, I, I do have an enormous amount of compassion for that because I also think that is a moment when we're so tempted to judge ourselves. I've failed at a relationship. I have failed at something big that I was meant to succeed at. Women, you're right, are enormously judgmental. We are um, made this way. I'm not sure that we're born this way. Um, and the expectations, that's the word that I think has been floating around in the ether here in this conversation. You know, our expectations are ginormous on ourselves and completely unrealistic. Sometimes that boomerangs and makes us into having self-defeating behaviors, um, you know, and, and those can be um, stepping outside of fidelity and, and things, you know, maybe that is what was meant to be, but, you know, it's, it's a destructive step to take or a destructive way to take it. Let's put it that way. So back to you, Dr. Seth, we are now talking about the extraordinary pressures on women to um, live up to expectations. What about other let's say even more marginalized groups. I mean, this idea of, you know, getting in touch with yourself, finding yourself, having the freedom to choose, is this really selective somehow demographically? Does everyone have equal opportunity at this kind of enlightenment? Or is it somehow skewed? Because some of us have extraordinary constraints. Some of us have extraordinary um, external pressures. What's your comment on that? What a great question. You know, I, I, my, my initial feeling is that, you know, when you see images of people who, who seem like they have it all together, like they're living the perfect mindful lifestyle, I mean, they, they tend to be uh, you know, certain uh, you know, higher SES uh, from more privileged backgrounds. And so from that perspective, it, it, you know, able to afford... Uh, you know, $25 yoga classes and expensive yoga retreats and having the luxury of taking time to do that, not working two jobs and trying to make ends meet. But I would actually ask, is it possible for people who have so much to find that deep level of contentment? 
because I, I'm impressed so often by those who have so little, especially depictions I've seen of, of people in other countries that I don't want to romanticize uh, poverty or, or, or uh, destitution or desperation by any means. And yet we see these people who are living extremely simple lives, earning in a year what you know, most of us earn in a day or less, and you know, living in homes with dirt, dirt floors. And yet there's a, a, there seems to be a deep sense of connection and contentment. And a lot of it, it makes me think of, of what Brother David Sandorast has described as, as the, the joy and, and gratefulness that we experience comes from our container, which we might call our expectations, overflowing. And so I know for myself and probably most of us in Western society who are moderately well-off, we're comfortable enough, we're not worried about uh, where our next meal is going to come from, our containers are, are huge, and it takes so much to experience that, that sense of appreciation and, 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 and the gratitude, I think, that is one of the first fruits of, of really being connected to this moment just as it is. So I, I think there's, a, there's a, a challenge for all of us, I think, regardless of where we find ourselves socially or uh, culturally, I think it, it comes down to the, the particular challenges that we're dealing with and, and, uh, and, and recognizing what those are for us as individuals. Mm-hmm. And simplicity, um, you know, if you don't get too far away from core values, then you don't really have to go swinging way back. You, you never left it in the first place. You know, you have simple joys. And I think that those of us that do live rather privileged lives comparatively are, are want to have to do this maintenance every day of returning to this the simplest the simplest moment that brings us the joy that opens us up that keeps us you know human um and i wanted to we're we're going to believe it or not pause for a commercial break in a few minutes but um dr aria continue with us on this thread of you know, the idea of um, the sacred is also mentioned in your book, A Mindful Year. It's the subtitle, uh, Ways to Find Connection in the Sacred. Um, where does the sacred come into this? How do we tap into the sacred and what does it look like? I think one way of thinking about it is that there are two paths or two journeys in life. And one is the external and one is the internal. So the external will be concerned with material status, uh, relationship status, with our financial status. And we all have different uh, goals and motivations to progress on that journey. And that in itself is valid and it's worthy. But there's also the internal journey. And the internal journey is about moving towards a greater degree of self-awareness and self-understanding about connecting to our values, whether or not that is honesty or truth or love or inspiration or creativity or connection or wisdom or resilience or growth. And often what happens is we've become deluded in only focusing on the external and seeing that actually within us, there is a a sacred space. There is a deep sanctuary of inner stillness and peace. And what I've begun to do is begin to re-question and redefine what is my idea of success? What does success actually look like to me personally? What do I want out of this life? What am, where am I going? Why am I, why am I trying to go there? And more and more and more I come to realize I'm letting go of expectations of external achievements. And they'll, I believe that they come and, and that's wonderful. But really digging deep and connecting to that still sacred space, because I think that's where the ease and the security and the wisdom and the love is always present, is always there. I think the great irony is that 
in the present is everything that we need deep within us is everything that we need all the love the comfort the security the peace the contentment the fulfillment the happiness the joy the appreciation the gratitude the blessings and the freedom is already within us and our task is actually to let go of what we've learned to unlearn and to actually experience it it's a beautiful reversal and a deep well to drop into. I think it's amazing to think that we all have what we need. Um, it's something that I think causes a, a certain standstill in our thoughts, just even contemplating it. So thank you both for articulating this so well. We are going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to tackle the subject of connection, given that we've had so much interrupted connection during the pandemic. How do we retrieve it? What are we really looking for in the way of connection? And what is the meaning of ourselves relationally um, as we go about looking for meaning again in the world? Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Arya Campbell-Dinesh and Dr. Seth Gillahan, authors of A Mindful Year, 365 Ways to Find Connection and the Sacred in Everyday Life. So we don't have to go far to find it. But connection, that proved challenging this last year. You two are, are both, um, I think, very, very mindfully aware. What's going on with us now that we're reconnecting um, with people again and is it even more is there even more gratitude involved with that it feels like it to me where uh, are we now back to you Dr. Seth yeah it, it does seem like there's more gratitude I certainly appreciate more those connections because it really is our nature to be in connection and it's a it's a lie that, that makes us believe otherwise, but we are, I mean, there's, there are a lot of disconnects among us, you know, political, religious, geographical, class, and, and we're, we're a long way, I think, from, from transcending those, but on a more fundamental level, I think you're exactly right, as in this, this awareness, we, these things we took for granted, just being able to be in the same room with someone or, or to be hugged, especially if we live alone and may not have been hugged for, for months. Those are, those really, are, those sustain us in the same way. I mean, they sustain our spirits in the way that food sustains our bodies. Well, the dog is really tired of being hugged. I can tell you that. And, you know, it's not that he runs away from me, but, um, you know, like the, you, we, we do need the, you know, and of course, you know, my husband, my husband is, is always open for a hug. So, so that's good. But, um, you know, we, we, do, we do feel our separateness. And yet what you're saying, both of you, about this inner reserve, this inner reservoir that we have that is 
a form of spirit, a form of source, it's a commonality, right? Like it's universal. Everyone can be a teacher. Everyone has something to share with us. And it makes some of those boundaries of geopolitical, social, economic seem very moot um, as a point. Um, does this form of spirituality, or if you will, or philosophy or psychology, um, Dr. Arya, does it have the power to unite us after all of this? I believe so. And I believe that it, it moves us to a place of non-duality. So often we, when we enter this world, we, we create a separate identity and we come to have a theory of mind where I am I and you are you and we are separate and we are distinct. And I think part of the spiritual journey is beginning to move to a place of non-duality, of oneness, of seeing that at our core, we are all consciousness. And you can even look at that on a quantum mechanical or metaphysical level that essentially everything is is form and space and form is space and space is form that there there is just energy and at a very at a very surface level this energy takes different forms but the truth is there is no separation there is no separation between myself and you and myself and the table on a very deep metaphysical level it is all one and when we begin to move towards that place at least initially on a cognitive level and and begin to see that actually we're all connected. We are all, we are all expressions of consciousness. We can then move to a place where we begin to experience that. That actually, if I hurt you, I'm hurting myself. Mm-hmm. If I'm hurting nature, I'm also hurting myself because it's all one. And the Zen master Shinru Suzuki would say that enlightenment has only one way to be present and to express your true nature and sincerity. And actually, I think a lot of what connection about is about is also about connecting to ourselves. It's about moving, seeing what the obstacles are and the disconnections are, and really, truly expressing who we are, our authenticity, our truth, our love. And when we do, and we all have moments of it, and a lot of my clients will say when they do, they feel at peace, they feel alive, they feel it makes sense. When we're not putting on a mask and trying to be who everyone else says we should be or who we think we should be, when we are true and honest, then we feel at home. If I could just add at to that, in the world, Diane, and... I, I, yes. I love what yes, Ari please. said about, um, Ari, I love what you said about how when we recognize our connection and our oneness, then that inspires us to care for one another. And I think that's, that's so fundamental right now in this time, especially, I mean, it seems like especially here in the, in the U.S. and there's been such a reckoning over the past year or more following the, the killing of George Floyd in terms of the, uh, the, the pain that a lot of people are experiencing and maybe different backgrounds and it's been easy to ignore. And now we're, we're confronted with it. And, and I think one of the real gifts of mindfulness is that it can inspire action. You know, I think of, of a lot of the, uh, you know, people like Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, who Arya studied with, who were um, and, and are real leaders in, in advocating for, for change in our world. And so I think sometimes r- rightly so, mindfulness has been accused of being a kind of of uh, overly, quote-unquote, spiritual approach, kind of spiritualized approach that ignores the fact that bodies are, bodies are being broken and that the people are being, are being harmed and, and uh, children are suffering and so forth. So I think what awareness and a sense of connection can move us to really is to, to act in ways that improve the lives of, of the people around us. By caring, by by extending ourselves beyond ourselves. I mean, by, you know, realizing there aren't boundaries, that we are at one interplay with one another. And by demonstrating that, by treating, you know, by caring about others' hardships and 
really trying to make amends for that, really trying to use ourselves as vehicles um, for love, for, for caring. And that can be, you know, in the smallest way, as you point out. Um, I wonder if you'd also like to tackle the subject. I mean, I, I love this idea that collectively we're somehow m- moving towards a oneness. This one can only hope and with this book, you know, we, we find another reason to be hopeful because we have another tool at our disposal. Um, but let's talk about growth as non-binary. We grow because we're whole, not because we're fundamentally flawed. And this is a different assumption than, um, than we used to hold about ourselves. So again, it's non-judgmental. Um, but maybe as a collective we're not as whole maybe as individuals we are but we've lost our collective wholeness anyone either of you would like to comment on that yes i think it's a that really is an important point in terms of seeing that we are all growing and evolving and yet we're all whole at each moment and the analogy which i would often use is a little bit like a flower you know, and initially it's a seed and then it uh, will have shoots and then it will create a bud and, and then it's closed and, and the flower will begin to open at different stages. Now, at any one point, that flower is whole and complete as it is, but it's still in it. It's just in a particular stage of its growth. We don't really look at a seed and compare it to a flower and say, gosh, that's a terrible seed. That's a, it's like a, a less worthy seed. Or if, you know, you look at different animals, I'm a huge dog lover. And, uh, you know, you can look at a Labrador and you can look at a Alsatian. And we don't look at the Labrador and say, uh, that is, gosh, that's like full lab. And that Alsatian is, it's like a, it's not, it's not Labrador. It's not Labrador enough. No, it's a different, it's an Alsatian. It's not a Labrador. So it's not less in any way it's just different and people might have different preferences you might prefer a lab might you might think it's cuter than an alsatian or a pug or whatever it might be or even that dog as it's growing up when it's a puppy to when it's an adult every at any stage we don't think oh gosh it's that's it's, it's less worthy now because it's at that stage you know it's always whole and always complete and it's about understanding that within ourselves you are always whole and always complete you're not lacking. You're not 80% there or 70% there. You are exactly where you are supposed to be. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't room for, for growth and change and evolution. Yes, there is, absolutely. But we can do that from a place of wholeness, from a place of love, rather than from a place of fear. And I think that's the key part, seeing that, in, you know, I, I said before, I'm a simple man. I look at it, there's two things in the world, love and fear. And our task is to see where am I coming from? Because the irony is when we're coming from a place of fear, we come from scarcity. When we come from love, we come from abundance. With fear, we're closed-minded. With love, we're curious. With fear, there's hesitancy. With love, there's creativity. With fear, there's timidity. With love, there's courage. With fear, there's rigidity. With love, there's fluidity. With fear, there's condemnation. With love, there's compassion. With fear, there's exclusion. With love, there's inclusion. So whenever people, like Seth, mm-hmm. made that beautiful point, people think that mindfulness awareness is about inaction. No, 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 no. There's nothing more powerful and more courageous than awareness because awareness allows you to connect to love. And in love, we can take hard actions. Look, any of the spiritual leaders or prophets, religious or, or otherwise, they took strong action. They took powerful action. And they were prepared to often die for their cause. They took action and they came from a place of love. So part of it is seeing that when we come from love, yes, we will rush into action. We will see someone that's been knocked down on the street and we'll run towards them to help them from a place of love. And that benefits ourselves and it benefits others too. Well, one thinks about, you know, Nelson Mandela or Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, there was a lot of action even in the passive resistance. Um, and there is, um, you know, the ability to act from a place of abundance and love that does motivate us. Um, the, 
incredible thing is that we've just got a minute or so left, and I want to um, touch back to you, Dr. Seth. We now find that we have the freedom to make mistakes, but we're fallible, so how could we not? And is it just about the interpretation of those going forward and um, trusting, trusting and having faith? Um, and since there's no scientific proof for even love, um, why not? Can you comment in less than 30 seconds? Sorry. <laughs> I, I want to I focus on trust, which I think is, is such a, a, a key part of what you mentioned. And tr- trust, I think it, what we came down to at the, toward the end of our book really is about trusting yourself, that you're, you're doing the best you can, you're growing trusting this moment that you can settle into it and receive it as it is, and trusting uh, the, the universe, this universe that makes space for us exactly as we are. I think when we, when we move from a place of trust, I think that that is that coming from love, as Aria was describing. Well, it's a beautiful gift, and on the Independence Day weekend, a way of releasing ourselves from negativity that I just have to thank you both very much, Dr. Arya Campbell-Danesh and Dr. Seth Gillahan, for being with us. We are also thankful to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe. And retain equilibrium. Declare your independence. Until next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 